Chapter 3 of Sentimental Education by Gustave Flaubert. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Sentiment and Passion Two months later, Frederick, having debarked one morning in the Rue Coqueron, immediately thought of paying his great visit. Chance came to his aid. Père Roch had brought him a roll of papers and requested him to deliver them up himself to Monsieur D'Ambreuse, and the worthy man accompanied the package with an open letter of introduction in behalf of his young fellow countrymen. Madame Moreau appeared surprised at this proceeding. Frederick concealed the delight that it gave him. Monsieur D'Ambreuse's real name was the Count D'Ambreuse, but since 1825, gradually abandoning his title of nobility and his party, he had turned his attention to business, and, with his ears open in every office, his hand in every enterprise, on the watch for every opportunity, as subtle as a Greek and as laborious as a native of Auvergne, he had amassed a fortune which might be called considerable. Furthermore, he was an officer of the Legion of Honour, a member of the General Council of the Aube, a deputy, and, one of these days, would be a peer of France. However, affable as he was in other respects, he wearied the minister by his continual applications for relief, for crosses, and licenses for tobacconists' shops, and in his complaints against authority he was inclined to join the left centre. His wife, the pretty Madame d'Ambreuse, of whom mention was made in the fashion journals, presided at charitable assemblies. By wheedling the duchesses, she appeased the rancours of the aristocratic Faubourg, and led the residents to believe that Monsieur d'Ambreuse might yet repent and render them some services. The young man was agitated when he called on them. I should have done better to take my dress coat with me. No doubt they will give me an invitation to next week's ball. What will they say to me? His self-confidence returned when he reflected that Monsieur d'Ambreuse was only a person of the middle class, and he sprang out of the cab briskly on the pavement of the Rue d'Anjou. When he had pushed forward one of the two gateways, he crossed the courtyard, mounted the steps in front of the house, and entered a vestibule paved with coloured marble. A straight double staircase with red carpet, fastened with copper rods, rested against the high walls of shining stucco. At the end of the stairs there was a banana tree, whose wide leaves fell down over the velvet of the baluster. Two bronze candelabra with porcelain globes hung from little chains. The atmosphere was heavy with the fumes exhaled by the vent holes of the hot air stoves, and all that could be heard was the ticking of a big clock fixed at the other end of the vestibule under a suit of armour. A bell rang, a valet made his appearance, and introduced Frederick into a little apartment, where one could observe two strong boxes with pigeon holes filled with pieces of pasteboard. In the centre of it, Monsieur d'Ambreuse was writing at a roll-top desk. He ran his eye over Père Roque's letter, tore open the canvas in which the papers had been wrapped, and examined them. At some distance he presented the appearance of being still young, owing to his slight figure. But his thin white hair, his feeble limbs, and above all the extraordinary pallor of his face, betrayed a shattered constitution. There was an expression of pitiless energy in his sea-green eyes, colder than eyes of glass. 
His cheekbones projected and his finger joints were knotted. At length, he arose and addressed to the young man a few questions with regards to persons of their acquaintance at Nogent, and also with regards to his studies, and then dismissed him with a bow. Frederick went out through another lobby and found himself at the lower end of the courtyard near the coach-house. A blue brougham, to which a black horse was yoked, stood in front of the steps before the house. The carriage door flew open, a lady sprang in, and the vehicle, with a rumbling noise, went rolling along the gravel. Frederick had come up to the courtyard gate from the other side at the same moment. As there was not room enough to allow him to pass, he was compelled to wait. The young lady, with her head thrust forward past the carriage blind, talked to the doorkeeper in a very low tone. All he could see was her back, covered with a violet mantle. However, he took a glance into the interior of the carriage, lined with blue rep, with silk lace and fringes. The lady's ample robes filled up the space within. He stole away from this little padded box with its perfume of iris and, so to speak, its vague odour of feminine elegance. The coachman slackened the reins, the horse brushed abruptly past the starting point, and all disappeared. Frederick returned on foot, following the track of the boulevard. He regretted not having been able to get a proper view of Madame d'Ampose. A little higher than the Rue Montmartre, a regular jumble of vehicles made him turn round his head, and on the opposite side, facing him, he read on a marble plate, Jacques Arnoux. How was it that he had not thought about her sooner? It was Delaurier's fault, and he approached the shop, which, however, he did not enter. He was waiting for her to appear. The high, transparent plate-glass windows presented to one's gaze statuettes, drawings, engravings, catalogues, and numbers of l'art industriel arranged in a skilful fashion, and the amounts of the subscription were repeated on the door, which was decorated in the centre with the publisher's initials. Against the walls could be seen large pictures whose varnish had a shiny look, two chests laden with porcelain, bronze, alluring curiosities, a little staircase separated them, shut off at the top by a Wilton portiere, and a lustre of old sacks, a green carpet on the floor with a table of marqueterie, gave to this interior the appearance rather of a drawing-room than of a shop. Frederick pretended to be examining the drawings. After hesitating for a long time, he went in. A clerk lifted the portiere, and in reply to a question, said that Monsieur would not be in the shop before five o'clock. But if the message could be conveyed, No, I'll come back again, Frederick answered blandly. The following days were spent in searching of lodgings, and he fixed upon an apartment in a second story of a furnished mansion in the Rue Yassin. With a fresh blotting case under his arm, he set forth to attend the opening lecture of the course. Three hundred young men, bareheaded, filled an amphitheatre, where an old man in a red gown was delivering a discourse in a monotonous voice. Quill pens were scratching over the paper. In this hall he found once more the dusty odour of the school, a reading desk of similar shape, the same wearisome monotony. For a fortnight he regularly continued his attendance at law lectures, but he left off the study of the civil code before getting as far as Article Three and he gave up the institutes of the Summa Divisio Personarum. The pleasures that he had promised himself did not come to him, 
And when he had exhausted a circulating library, gone over the collections in the Louvre, and been at the theatre a great many nights in succession, he sank into the lowest depths of idleness. His depression was increased by a thousand fresh annoyances. He found it necessary to count his linen and to bear with the doorkeeper, a bore with the figure of a male hospital nurse who came in the morning to make up his bed, smelling of alcohol and grunting. He did not like his apartment, which was ornamented with an alabaster timepiece. The partitions were thin, he could hear the students making punch, laughing, and singing. Tired of his solitude, he sought out one of his old schoolfellows named Baptiste Martinon, and he discovered this friend of his boyhood in a middle-class boarding house in the Rue Saint-Jacques, cramming up legal procedure before a coal fire. A woman in a print dress sat opposite him darning his socks. Martinon was what people call a very fine man, big, chubby, with a regular physiognomy, and blue eyes far up in his face. His father, an extensive landowner, had destined him for the magistracy, and wishing already to prevent a grave exterior, he wore his beard cut like a collar around his neck. As there was no rational foundation for Frederick's complaints, and as he could not give evidence of any misfortune, Martinon was unable in any way to understand his lamentations about existence. As for him, he went every morning to the school, after that took a walk in the Luxembourg, in the evening swallowed his half-cup of coffee, and with fifteen hundred francs a year and the love of his workwoman, he felt perfectly happy. What happiness! was Frederick's internal comment. At the school he had formed another acquaintance, a youth of aristocratic family who, on account of his dainty manners, suggested a resemblance to a young lady. Monsieur de Sissi devoted himself to drawing and loved the Gothic style. They frequently went together to admire the Saint-Chapelle and Notre-Dame, but the young patrician's rank and pretensions covered an intellect of the feeblest order. Everything took him by surprise. He laughed immoderately at the most trifling joke, and displayed such utter simplicity that Frederick at first took him for a wag, and finally regarded him as a booby. The young man found it impossible, therefore, to be effusive with anyone, and he was constantly looking forward to an invitation from the Dampreuse. On New Year's Day he sent them visiting cards, but received none in return. He made his way back to the office of L'Art Industriel. A third time he returned to it, and at last saw Arnoux carrying on an argument with five or six persons around him. He scarcely responded to the young man's bow, and Frederick was wounded by this reception. Nonetheless, he cogitated over the best means of finding his way to her side. His first idea was to come frequently to the shop on the pretext of getting pictures at low prices. Then he conceived the notion of slipping into the letterbox of the journal a few very strong articles which might lead to friendly relations. Perhaps it would be better to go straight to the market once and declare his love. Acting on this impulse, he wrote a letter covering a dozen pages, full of lyric movements and apostrophes, but he tore it up and did nothing, attempted nothing, bereft of motive power by his want of success. Above Arnoux's shop there were, on the first floor, three windows which were lighted up every evening. Shadows might be seen moving about behind them, especially one. This was hers, and he went very far out of his way in order to gaze at these windows and to contemplate this shadow. 
A negress who crossed his path one day in the Tuileries, holding a little girl by the hand, recalled to his mind Madame Arnoux's negress. She was sure to come here like the others. Every time he passed through the Tuileries, his heart began to beat with the anticipation of meeting her. On sunny days, he continued his walk as far as the end of the Champs-Élysées. Women seated with careless ease in open carriages, and with their veils floating in the wind, filed past close to him, their horses advancing at a steady walking pace, and with an unconscious seesaw movement that made the varnished leather of the harness crackle. The vehicles became more numerous, and slackening their motion after they had passed the circular space where the roads met, they took up the entire track. The horses' manes and the carriage lamps were close to each other. The steel stirrups, the silver curbs, and the brass rings flung here and there, luminous points in the midst of the short breeches, the white gloves and the furs falling over the blazonry of the carriage doors. He felt as if he were lost in some far-off world. His eyes wandered along the rows of female heads, and certain vague resemblances brought back Madame Arnoux to his recollection. He pictured her to himself, in the midst of the others, in one of those little brooms like Madame d'Ambrose's broom. But the sun was setting, and the cold wind raised whirling clouds of dust. The coachmen let their chins sink into their neckcloths. The wheels began to revolve more quickly. The road metal grated, and all the equipage descended the long sloping avenue at a quick trot, touching, sweeping past one another, getting out of one another's way. Then, at the Place de la Concorde, they went off in different directions. Behind the Tuileries, there was a patch of slate-colored sky. The trees of the garden formed two enormous masses, violet-hued at their summits. The gas lamps were lighted, and the Seine, green all over, was torn into strips of silver moiré near the piers of the bridges. He went to get a dinner for forty-three sous in a restaurant in La Rue de l'Arbre. He glanced disdainfully at the old mahogany counter, the soiled napkins, the dingy silver plate, and the hats hanging up on the wall. Those around him were students like himself. They talked about their professors and about their mistresses. Much he cared about professors. Had he a mistress? To avoid being a witness of their enjoyment, he came as late as possible. The tables were all strewn with remnants of food. The two waiters, worn out with attendance on customers, lay asleep, each in a corner of his own, and an odour of cooking of an argand lamp and of tobacco filled the deserted dining room. Then he slowly toiled up the streets again. The gas lamps vibrated, casting on the mud long yellowish shafts of flickering light. Shadowy forms surmounted by umbrellas glided along the footpath. The pavement was slippery, the fog grew thicker, and it seemed to him that the moist gloom, wrapping him around, descended into the depths of his heart. He was smitten with a vague remorse. He renewed his attendance at lectures, but as he was entirely ignorant of the matters which formed the subject of explanation, things of the simplest description puzzled him. He set about writing a novel entitled Silvio, the Fisherman's Son. The scene of the story was Venice. The hero was himself, and Madame Arnoux was the heroine. She was called Antonia, and to get possession of her, he assassinated a number of noblemen, 
and burned a portion of the city, after which achievements he sang a serenade under her balcony, where fluttered in the breeze the red damask curtains of the boulevard Montmartre. The reminiscences, far too numerous, on which he dwelt, produced a disheartening effect on him. He went no further with the work, and his mental vacuity redoubled. After this, he begged of Delaurier to come and share his apartment. They might make arrangements to live together with the aid of his allowance of two thousand francs. Anything would be better than this intolerable existence. Delaurier could not yet leave Troyes. He urged his friend to find some means of distracting his thoughts, and, with that end in view, suggested that he should call on Senecal. Senecal was a mathematical tutor, a hard-headed man with republican convictions, a future St. Just, according to the clerk. Frederick ascended the five flights up which he lived, three times in succession, without getting a visit from him in return. He did not go back to the place. He now went in for amusing himself. He attended the balls at the opera house. These exhibitions of riotous gaiety froze him the moment he had passed the door. Besides, he was restrained by the fear of being subjected to insult on the subject of money, his notion being that a supper with a domino entailing considerable expense was rather a big adventure. It seemed to him, however, that he must needs love her, Sometimes he used to wake up with his heart full of hope, dressed himself carefully as if he were going to keep an appointment, and started on interminable excursions all over Paris. Whenever a woman was walking in front of him or coming in his direction, he would say, Here she is. Every time it was only a fresh disappointment. The idea of Madame Arnoux strengthened these desires. Perhaps he might find her on his way, and he conjured up dangerous complications, extraordinary perils from which he could save her, in order to get near her. So the days slipped by with the same tiresome experiences, and the enslavement to contracted habits. He turned over the pages of pamphlets under the arcades of the Odéon, went to read the Revue des Deux Mondes at the café, entered the hall of the Collège de France, and for an hour stopped to listen to a lecture on Chinese or political economy. Every week he wrote long letters to Delaurier, dined from time to time with Martinon, and occasionally saw Monsieur de Sissi. He hired a piano and composed German waltzes. One evening at the theatre of the Palais Royal, he perceived, in front of the stage boxes, Arnoux with a woman by his side. Was it she? The screen of green taffeta pulled over the side of the box hid her face. At length the curtain rose, and the screen was drawn aside. She was a tall woman of about thirty, rather faded, and, when she laughed, her thick lips uncovered a row of shining teeth. She chatted familiarly with Arnoux, giving him, from time to time, taps with her fan on the fingers. Then a fair-haired young girl with eyelids a little red, as if she had just been weeping, seated herself between them. Arnoux, after that, remained stooped over her shoulder, pouring forth a stream of talk to which she listened without replying. Frederick taxed his ingenuity to find out the social position of these women, modestly attired in gowns of sober hue with flat, turned-up collars. At the close of the play, he made a dash for the passages. The crowd of people going out filled them up. 
Arnaud, just in front of him, was descending the staircase, step by step, with a woman on each arm. Suddenly, a gas burner shed its light on him. He wore a crepe hat-band. She was dead, perhaps? This idea tormented Frederick's mind so much that he hurried next day to the office of L'Art Industriel, and paying without a moment's delay for one of the engravings exposed in the window for sale, he asked the shop assistant how was Monsieur Harnoux. The shop assistant replied, Why, quite well. Frederick, growing pale, added, And madame? Madame also. Frederick forgot to carry off his engraving. The winter drew to an end. He was less melancholy in the springtime and began to prepare for his examination. Having passed it indifferently, he started immediately afterwards for Nogent. He refrained from going to Troyes to see his friend in order to escape his mother's comments. Then, on his return to Paris at the end of the vacation, he left his lodgings and took two rooms on the Quai Napoléon, which he furnished. He had given up all hope of getting an invitation from the Dampreuse. His great passion for Madame Arnoux was beginning to die out. End of chapter 3